Good morning and welcome. My name's Bob, one of the leaders of this church. It's a joy to welcome you here this morning. Now, um, I'd like you to complete the line of this song. Please sing it if you wish. How sweet to hold a newborn baby. What's, that? What's the next line? How sweet to hold a newborn baby and... Thank you very much. Don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> I'm sure that is how Adam and Eve felt when they had their firstborn baby, Cain, and held him in their arms and put their family pictures on Facebook page. And no doubt their joy and their gratitude to God was multiplied and expressed when baby Abel was added to their first family. But... In the course of time, their joy and hope would be turned to heartbreak and unimaginable pain as their firstborn murders his brother Abel and then walks out on the Lord and his parents forever. That's the drama that we see unfolding in Genesis 4. Let's ask God to speak to us. Father... This is your word. We pray uh, in the words of those Greeks who came to the disciples, Lord, we would see Jesus. Show us your firstborn son, the answer to our deepest needs in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Let me give you an overview of Genesis 4. The story is a drama in three parts. But there are two plot lines that are interwoven into this drama. The two plot lines that are being played out are an outworking of Genesis 3.15 where the Lord says, and I will put enmity between you, that's talking to the snake and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So there's two offsprings, two seeds, two family lines, if you like. There is the family line of the snake and the family line of the woman. And they are the two plot lines that are unfolding in Genesis 4. Indeed, they unfold throughout the rest of the Bible. And Genesis develops and emphasizes the enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. In commenting on this passage in the New Testament, the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 12, wrote, Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. As I say, the drama against which which these two plot lines are played out is in three parts in Genesis 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 4, and I'll just give you an overview of the passage in verses 1 through 16, we see the account of the first family who have been banished from the Garden of Eden. That's what happened at the end of chapter 3. 3.24, after the Lord drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden uh, of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword to flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So they've been banished from the Garden of Eden. But notice... In 4, 1 through 16, they are still living in the Lord's presence. These children were raised 
Cain and Abel were raised by parents who trusted the Lord and therefore sought to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, we see that Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord, and it would seem that both of them are wanting to worship the Lord. But Cain, verse 5, having his offering rejected by the Lord because he did not, according to Hebrews chapter 11, did not offer it in faith as did Abel, we see his heart reactions to the Lord, very angry, and his face was downcast. But notice how the Lord responds. He responds in grace, seeking to turn Cain's heart back to himself, verses 6 through 7. Note, Eve, in Genesis 3, was talked into sinning against God by the snake. But Cain, in Genesis 4, could not be talked out of sinning against the Lord, even by the Lord himself. But notice, even after the murder of Abel, the Lord is still seeking to lead Cain to confession and repentance and showing him and us that sin has devastating consequences, but that grace is nonetheless available. Verses 10 through 12. And notice, even in Cain's punishment, which was not instant execution and eternal damnation, which he fully deserved, the Lord puts a mark on Cain to protect him from being killed. Verse 15. But despite having offers of grace upon grace, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 16. So the first family who have been banished from the Garden of Eden are still living in the Lord's presence and are now utterly devastated by Cain's sins. Part two of the drama is that the second family who are now living east of Eden, having gone out from the Lord's presence, we read about them in verses 17 through 24 where Cain marries and begins to raise a family and is seeking to make a name for himself. There's a hint here, I think, that he was building a city. There's a hint looking forward to forthcoming attractions in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Now, notice that there is still common grace. Even amongst this second family, in Cain's descendants, they have artistic gifts. Some of them are very musically gifted. Verse 21, and they also have engineering skills, verse 22. There is common grace. And then we're introduced to Lamech. And, the, and Lamech's character shows us that sin is literally going viral. He takes two wives and he brags about killing a young man for injuring him. And his pride is so he can strut sitting down this guy because he said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. So here we see the second family, the offspring of the snake, where there is literally no fear of God before their eyes. And the chapter closes with, meanwhile, back with the first family. As I say, the first family, verses 25 to 26 banished from Eden, and now even more deeply scarred by sin, but they are still living in the Lord's presence. 
And the chapter closes with a dawn of hope that the first family, verses 25 and 26a, are still trusting the Lord. And at the end of the chapter, verse 26, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. So, as a preacher, the question is, so what? Very interesting, but so what? What's the big idea that the Lord wants us to grasp in Genesis 4? The big idea, the point of this passage is to show us that where sin increased, which it does and still is today, grace increased all the more. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There are three takeaways that I want us to think about this morning and to take away with us from the big so what question about Genesis 4. There are three things that the Lord wants us to take away from this passage. Number one, the appalling hearts that we all have. Number two, the amazing grace we all need. And number three, how to get it. How to get our appalling hearts transformed by his amazing grace. So, if you have your Bibles, please follow. The appalling hearts we all have. The Bible makes it clear that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world through him. Sin entered the world through one man, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And so we all sinned in Adam. And the story of Genesis shows us that we have all inherited our first father, Adam's sinful nature. In chapter 5, verse 2, we read these words. Verse 3, pardon me. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his own image. We are the image bearers and the likeness bearers of our first fallen father, Adam. And Cain... Despite having been raised in a godly family of forgiven sinners who loved their children enough to teach them the way of the Lord, nevertheless turned his back on the Lord and on his family. It was ironic, was it not, that during a service of worship, bringing their offerings to the Lord, that we see... Cain's true character is so vividly and graphically exposed. So what I want to do is let, ask ourselves some heart-searching questions that the passage forces us to ask of our own hearts this morning. And this is the, these are the questions that I've asked myself this week. So as I say, misery loves company. So I want to ask you these questions as well. How do you respond... To criticism. Cain's offering, we learn in verse 5, was not accepted by the Lord. And he knew it. Look at his reaction. He became very angry, literally furious is what the word means. And his face was downcast. Literally, he fell apart emotionally. There was those twin, very powerful negative emotions coursing through this guy's heart, very angry with the Lord, and utterly devastated. He didn't respond well to criticism, did he? 
So how do you respond to criticism? How do you respond when your service for the Lord is criticised? It's an agreement that Tim and I have made that when we meet on Tuesdays for our team meeting, we have a licence to actually say what we really think about the sermon we heard from each other on Sunday morning. He has the right to tell me that was an ugly baby. Right? Because if I can't take criticism, it means I don't believe the gospel. Because it's a gospel issue. Let me ask you, so how do you respond to criticism? Do you have a complete meltdown when you're criticised because your very identity and worth is under attack? That's what's happening with Cain. His very identity, his very self-worth is not being looked upon with favour by the Lord. Or, though it hurts at the time, it doesn't destroy you. And after time, you find that it has, in actual fact, helped you to grow in Christ. The gospel makes it clear that how we respond to criticism is a measure of how deeply we actually do, do believe the gospel, that we are sinners being saved by sovereign grace. How do you respond to criticism? Next question. How do you respond to someone you know asking you hard questions? Verse 6. That's what happens in verse 6. The Lord asks Cain some hard questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Do you have someone in your life that... You trust enough to ask you the hard questions. At the uh, leaders' conference that, that some of us had the privilege and joy of going to last November, there was Colin Smith, who was, uh, is a Scotsman, pastor of a church in Enfield, now pastoring a church in America. And he says, occasionally I will ask my wife, or sit down in the kitchen, and, and, and I know that she will answer me honestly. He said... I want you to tell me one sin that, I, that you are aware of, you can see in me, that I'm oblivious to. Will you do that for me, please, darling? She said, can I tell you two? <laughs> and he said that was excruciatingly painful, but incredibly helpful. Do you have someone in your life to ask you the hard questions. And if they do ask you, when they ask you the hard questions, you get defensive and go into denial, get the hump, toys out the pram, or do you let your guard down and allow the Lord to minister to you through their questions? How do you respond to someone asking you the hard questions? Verse 7, how do you respond to someone you know pointing you to Christ? And warning you of the predatory nature of sin that is seeking your destruction. That's what happens in verse 7. If you do what is right, you know the gospel, Cain, says the Lord. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, notice how the Lord describes sin very graphically. He describes sin as a predatory animal. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do you have someone in your life that loves you enough to warn you of the dangers of sin that you're playing with? 
that you're literally playing with fire and you're going to destroy yourself. And when they ask you those questions, does it reach its target and stop you in your tracks? Or does it do just the reverse as it did with Cain and push you over the precipice? That's what happened in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. If, I guarantee you this, if Abel's sacrifice had not been accepted by the Lord, Cain would not have murdered him. It was only because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by the Lord and Cain's wasn't that Cain murdered him. Because Cain is expressing his anger against God by murdering his brother. That's what's happening in verse 8. Next question. How do you respond to someone you know confronting you with your sin? That's what's happening in verses 9 through 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, where, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Not well. The Lord said, what have you done? Is it flat out denial when someone confronts you? Someone who loves you enough to confront you with your sin. Is it flat out denial that eventually when you do fess up, turns into self-pity, verses 13 through 14. My punishment is more than I can bear. It's not more than you can bear. It's more than you, you're not getting what you deserve, actually. Is that how you respond when someone confronts you with sin in your life? Or as it was in the case of David, when he was confronted, it produced in him a profound repentance and confession and godly turning back to the Lord, Psalm 51. So how well do you really know your own heart this morning? Do you hate your sin or do you excuse it and justify it? This passage is like a mirror, is it not, that shows us the appalling hearts we all have. And it also shows us the amazing grace we all need. As well as I say, as a portrait of our own appalling hearts that are far worse than we can conceive or even process, this passage also shows us the amazing grace of God in Christ that we all need. A wise pastor used to often say from this pulpit, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. For every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. So let's do that now, because this passage shows us and points to God's amazing grace that we all need. We have every reason to praise God that he has placed us in a godly family and in a godly church family here where we experience his grace together. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 5. God's grace is being mediated through a loving family. And God's grace is mediated to each and every one of us in this church through a loving church family. Praise God for that expression of his amazing grace and I would say one of the applications from this point is this passage encourages us to develop relationships of great transparency and integrity and accountability within the do you have people within this church that you can go to and you trust to tell them 
what's going on in your heart, knowing that they will hold you to account, but love you enough to pray with you and pray for you. This passage encourages us to make use of that means of grace. If you're tracking with this in the home groups, that's some suggestions I've put for you to think about in your home groups this week. But also, this passage encourages us to praise God that he is so patient with each and every one of us. We are none of us getting what our sins deserve, are we? You've still got a pulse. You can still fog a mirror. You can still sing God's praise. That's amazing grace, is it not? You are not being treated as your sins deserve. And and God's patience with Cain, verses 6 through 7, is a stunning reminder of his amazing grace. And as I say, he does not treat us. Praise God, he does not treat me as my sins deserve. I do not get what I deserve in this life. And he is giving every one of us on planet earth more time. He delays executing his judgment, giving us, giving everyone more time to repent. That's grace, verses 10 through 15. And praise God that this passage also points us to the truth that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. The gospel teaches us that there is no sin that is so heinous, so dark, so terrible, that will not be forgiven and washed away if you turn and repent. There is no sin so dark, so terrible, even the murder of your brother can be forgiven by God's redeeming grace if you will turn and repent of your sin. And there is no sin so trivial in our in our assessment that will not lead to your eternal damnation if it is not repented of. Whilst Abel's blood cries out to the Lord for vengeance, And justice, verse 10, which of course it does, it also points us forward to the death of another son whose sprinkled blood cries out to God for mercy. Hebrews 12, 24. Abel's firstborn son Cain slaughtered his secondborn son Abel whose shed blood cries out to God for justice and vengeance. And we, Adam's sons and daughters, born in the image and likeness of our first father, have, by our willful, sinful lives, slaughtered God's firstborn son, Jesus. Every one of us in this room this morning has blood on our hands. And it's Jesus' blood on our hands. Acts 2.36, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. John Newton writing years, decades later, thousands of years about 1,500 years later, wrote this. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt 
and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. Stuart Townend. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And praise God that Jesus' blood that we shed cries out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness and our full acceptance as his sons and daughters. That is the picture that this passage shows us of the amazing grace we all need. We have, we have hearts that are appalling. shows us the appalling hearts we all have, but it shows us the amazing grace we all need, and it shows us how to get it. Notice how the chapter closes. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord means to worship the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord means to joyfully acknowledge his rule and reign over your life. To call on the name of the Lord means to express your total dependence on his grace for the forgiveness of your sins. We were reminded last week that sin dethrones God from your heart, as did Cain and his family line. They literally dethroned God from their lives. Calling on the name of the Lord rethrones God as the Lord and Savior of your life, as did Seth and his family line. To call on the name of the Lord, as the Bible repeats, is how you receive his amazing grace. Because, according to Joel and Acts and Romans, because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you received this morning God's amazing grace? Is your heart being transformed by God's amazing grace. Do you have, have you seen something of how appalling your heart really is? Have you been struck by how amazing God's grace is? Have you and are you calling on the name of the Lord? This is amazing grace. If you'd like to pray with me or Tim or one of the elders afterwards, we'd love to do that. So if you want to hang about, um, we'll be in here for a few moments after the service so we can pray with you. That would be our privilege to do so, if the Lord has spoken to you in any way this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our closing song together. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is amazing grace. We worship and praise you that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. We thank you that Jesus' blood speaks a better word to our souls, to the cosmos, than the blood of Abel. Grant that every one of us and every home and family represented here before you this morning would be amongst those who call on the name of the Lord and receive your amazing grace for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Let's conclude.